Hey everybody, welcome to the final episode of the Bible Prophecy Timeline series, which is going to be about the Battle of Armageddon and a few other things. It's being released as both an audio podcast as well as a video on the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. And let me just say a few words about this series, as I know there is so much more I could have covered about this last half of the 70th week of Daniel, because after all, that's where the majority of the events that were prophesied and that we know about take place. I mean, I could have gone through so much stuff. I mean, the two witnesses in Revelation and different things that, you know, could have gone on forever and ever. But part of the reason that I did this timeline series is to focus really on that first half and the midpoint, as those are the areas that I think far less has been written about and talked about. So that was kind of my burden for the series is to talk about that first half and midpoint. And I have sort of been fast forwarding, if you will, through the last half. So if it seems like that, that is why. So the Battle of Armageddon, the two main topics I'm going to be covering are number one, when does this battle take place? Because the answer to that is a lot more complicated than I think most people realize. And number two, where is Armageddon? And here again, I think there's a lot of confusion, but here is a hint. It's probably not the Valley of Megiddo, as so many teach. So when does the Battle of Armageddon take place? I think it occurs 30 days after the end of the 70th week, 30 days after the end of that seven-year period. This 30-day period is also where I think the last plagues, the seven bowls of wrath, are poured out. And that 30-day period directly precedes another 45-day period, which we'll talk about here in a second. This position is held by people like Charles Cooper, Albert Sharpie, Robert Van Campen. And those names are, of course, people that believe in the pre-wrath rapture, as I do. And I should say that this theory about the final 75 days, also the one I'm about to talk about in terms of the location of Armageddon, they're not pre-wrath specific. I mean, it doesn't really matter what you believe about the rapture this this, as far as I know, doesn't have any bearing about the timing of the rapture or anything like that. I think the reason that a lot of pre-rathers uh, believe and teach it and have expanded on it is because of Robert Van Campen and Charles Cooper, who were early writers in the pre-rath rapture, and they did some studies on this. Um, and I think that you know, pre-rathers are just very meticulous researchers who take seriously the hermeneutical principle that there can't be contradictions in scripture and that scripture should be taken at face value. And it leads them, I think, to find truths that other systems have seemingly decided not to talk about. But uh, it doesn't, as far as I know, have anything to do with the timing of the rapture. It is just, I think, held by a lot of pre-rathers. So the first place we should turn to for more information about this final 75-day period is Daniel 12:11, which says, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Most Bible interpreters don't really know what to do with that verse. I've read a lot of commentaries, and they mostly just say it's a mystery. I mean, preterists don't even know what to do with it, as nothing really lines up with what they're trying to do. The issue is that back in Daniel 9.27, where we have the 70 weeks prophecy, where just about every commentator, including myself, understand that to be speaking of one final week of years, or a seven-year period, which consists of two halves, both halves equaling 1,260 days each, one before the abomination of desolation and one afterwards. In other words, that final seven-year period with two 1,260-day halves is very Israel-centric. It is when that ends, Israel's 
time is completed. It is where their promises are fulfilled at the end of that seven-year period. But now Daniel seems to be telling us that there is something that occurs after that occurs. Just to make sure that we're on the right track, this 1,260-day period, the seven-year period, the shorter half of the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, is reiterated in the book of Revelation, where it's referred to directly in several places, including a specific mention of 1,260 days in Revelation 12, where, interestingly, it's referring to the time that the woman, i.e. the faithful remnant of Israel, will be protected during the last half of the seven-year period. The 144,000 uh, are protected for 1,260 days. So it seems to tie into this Israel-centric concept, which ends at the end of that. But later, Daniel seems to be saying that there is an additional 75 days broken up into a 30- and 45-day period. I and others have theorized that the end of the 70th week is pictured when the seventh trumpet is blown, i.e. Revelation 11:15, which says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This space between the seventh trumpet being blown and the first bowl of wrath is also where the 144,000 who are no longer in hiding are on Mount Zion with Christ, which is interesting because it said that the 144,000 would be in hiding for 1,260 days, which all lines up with the end of the 70th week. So here the 144,000 are no longer in hiding, which Revelation 12 said that would be for 1,260 days, at the same time that the angel is declaring that uh, the kingdom of the Lord is now in place. So this 30-day period is often referred to as the reclamation period, in which Christ himself takes the 144,000 from their hiding place in Basra, probably Petra and Jordan, and makes their way to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where the kingdom is established, after which the Mount of Olives is split to make a hiding place for the 144,000, Zechariah 14. Then the last seven bowls are poured out in relatively quick succession, probably over that 30-day period, culminating with Armageddon, which is on the last day of that period. Then comes the 45-day period, which is often referred to as the Restoration Period, where the restoration of Mount Zion, Israel, and the Temple take place in preparation for Christ's rule on Earth, which occurs at the 1335-day mark. The people that have done the hard work on this Bible study about the 30- and 45-day period really just reveal a ton of Old Testament passages specifically that are talking about this that I certainly have overlooked. It's really amazing how much detail there is about this period, even though it's such a small space of time, this 30-day period. But from Albert Sharpie, I just have 25 Old Testament references here, including from places like Obadiah and Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Zechariah, etc. So it's really interesting. One of the more commonly referenced passages is about that moment in which uh, Christ himself is taking this 144,000 remnant from Basra to um, to Mount Zion. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments they, and stained all of my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. 
or the Zechariah 14 passage starting in verse 3 where it explains what the purpose of splitting the Mount of Olives is, that is to hide this particular remnant. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of Mount Zion shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azale. You shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So I know that there is this little bit of confusion about this because what do we have Christ on earth here before he then goes up in Revelation 19 with the holy armies that come down at the Battle of Armageddon. And that is what seems to be happening. There is this moment in which Christ is on earth beforehand. And I think that Christ may, in fact, and I think there's some people that theorize that he, after the rapture event before the day of the Lord, is in fact doing things. It does at least appear that he's here with this last part in terms of the just slaying of people on the way from Basra to Zion. And then there is a moment when he goes up basically again to come down with the saints in this final thing where they actually capture the Antichrist. And I think you can even see that in here in Zechariah 14 where it concludes with saying, then the Lord God will come with, with all the holy ones with him. So it's putting that event with the holy ones after this event of the Mount Olives situation, uh, which makes sense of some of these other things. But I think either way you look at it, because of the Revelation situation where you have the kingdom starting and the 144,000 on Mount Zion before the bulls are poured out, uh, you have more wrath to come. And I think that Zechariah actually shows that as well. It's a pretty consistent theme that I think has uh, no obvious contradictions that I can find. I think that a lot of people don't like the idea of this reclamation happening while the Antichrist is still on earth. In, in other words, Christ claims the throne in Zion while the Antichrist is still there. In fact, that's probably why the Antichrist marches, as we're going to see, on Jerusalem, is that the Antichrist no longer has that throne. He no longer owns Mount Zion, as it were. It's, being, it's already been claimed, and we'll see that that's what's happening in Armageddon later. But I don't think that people like the idea that there's more, that the bowls of wrath need to come after that's been claimed. So it causes, I think, some to try to merge the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, because if they were the same, then it would make sense to have the kingdom ending at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And, I, you know, thinking about it, I think that's maybe one of the reasons for this sometimes called accordion theory of just sort of trying to merge either the trumpets and the bowls or the seals' trumpets and the bowls. And there is some rhyming to that. I think like three of the seven trumpets, maybe even four, kind of have similar concepts, you know, earthquakes here or uh, different things that are similar in the seventh trumpet versus the seventh bowl or whatever. But there's also a ton of contradictions, like one third is killed in the trumpets where all of them are killed in the bowls, not the least of which that the ending of the trumpets introduces the seven bowls. So that would be a major contradiction if you tried to merge them. And anyway, the, the, the net result of this is that uh, if there is, and I think you just absolutely have to have the, the bowls come after the trumpets in succession, then you have the kingdom being declared and the 144,000 essentially wrapping up the 70th week before the bowls are poured out, which is why every study that I've seen on this, which I think come to that same conclusion through independent means, some of these other Old Testament passages are finding that the bowls must be poured out uh, at the end of that 30-day period uh, and which is sometimes called the reclamation period culminating in Armageddon. 
But I think it's just hard for people to, to accept in some ways that here we've got these glorious events in the middle of the day of the Lord. We've got the reclamation of the kingdom, and we have the ending of the 70th week of Daniel on Mount Zion with 144,000 as victorious events, which are clearly wrapped in the context of, hey, but there's about to be seven of the worst judgments that have ever that mankind has ever seen that are about to be poured out still. So you've got really good things mixed with 30 days of really bad things about to happen. And I think that's where people sort of get confused. This is the section in Revelation where people throw up their hands and are like, I don't even know what's going on. And I think this theory that Daniel's 1335-day period, i.e. an additional 75-day period after the 70th week ends, helps to explain all of this. Another thing that I think this theory explains is something that I only just noticed in the course of this study, which is found in Revelation 14, 13, which says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. In context, this is after the salvation of the 144,000 who are standing on Mount Zion, but explicitly before the final bold judgments. So it's saying, blessed are those that die in the Lord from now on. But I think when you connect it to Revelation 20, verses 4 through 5, it makes sense. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So here we have a resurrection right before the beginning of the 1,000 years, specifically of those who were beheaded. I think these beheaded ones are the same blessed ones spoken of in Revelation 14, 13, who were blessed if they died during that last short time. And I believe that they are mostly, if not exclusively, Jews who survived the day of the Lord and come to Christ at the end of the 70th week, who were not part of the first fruits, i.e. the 144,000. So there's a lot going on here that needs some unpacking, but let's first start with this phrase, this is the first resurrection. So this first resurrection idea, I believe it's talking about a type of resurrection. There are only two types of resurrection, a first type and a second type. The first type is one for the just, the resurrection of the justified saints that are resurrected to eternal life. And then there is another type of resurrection, which is of the unjust, which will occur 1,000 years after the conclusion of the first resurrection at the Great White Throne Judgment, which is only for unjustified people who will be judged according to their works and thrown into the lake of fire. Daniel speaks about these two resurrections in Daniel 12, 2, which says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is a two-resurrection idea established in Daniel 12. And the thing is, is that we know that this first resurrection, the resurrection of the just, must occur in several stages. It's made explicit that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. It's the proof that our resurrection will happen in the like manner. Also, if you believe in Matthew 27, 53, where it says, and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many, some people believe that that is some Old Testament saints being resurrected at the same time. The rapture occurs before the day of the Lord. It's just so 
clear that this can't be the rapture if no other reason is that these people are only beheaded. So only beheaded people are resurrected here. It's clearly a different thing unless you believe that the rapture will only include beheaded people. So we have, what is that? I mean, at a conservative level, we have three resurrections, possibly four resurrections that are all a part of the first resurrection. The second resurrection, no Christian will be a part of. It is the great white throne judgment, which is only for wicked people. And it's basically a sentencing hearing. Anyway, the point I was making here was about the 30-day period after the conclusion of Daniel's 70th week, where I think we are correct to link these two passages, one where there is a declaration of the blessedness of those who die in Christ from that point on, which is in context after the seventh trumpet has been blown, to the one in Revelation 20 where we see the resurrection of those beheaded. I also think you can see this in Daniel 12, 12, where the blessed dead past the 70th week are also mentioned. It says, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days, which would be a reference to the beginning of the 1000 years, which is explicitly mentioned as what the blessed beheaded saints will do when resurrected, i.e. rule with Christ during the 1000 years. This does potentially solve another problem too, which is that it's not until after the 70th week that the remnant of Jews, which include the 144,000, can believe in Christ and become, if you will, Christians. So it may be that the now saved rest of the remnant, probably the one third of Jews who the book of Zechariah suggests will survive the day of the Lord, i.e. the time of Jacob's trouble, can die in the Lord. That is because the 70th week has ended and they have recognized their Messiah is Jesus. I suppose that Revelation 24 through 5 could simply be a reference to all those who come to faith during the day of the Lord, not just Jews. But the timing of these otherwise difficult verses does make more sense when you plug in this 30-day concept after the 70th week. However, because this study is so complex, I have a hard time being too dogmatic about any of it, but I do find the studies I've read to be convincing, which I will link in the show notes of this episode. Moving on to the second part of this study, which is the question, where is Armageddon located? And here I want to start in Revelation 16, verse 16, which says, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And I want to draw your attention to this phrase that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So this that in Hebrew is telling us that John is transliterating this word from Hebrew to Greek. This is something that he does in other ways. John 5, 2, John 19, 13, John 19, 17, John 20, 16, and Revelation 1, 7 are other examples where John is telling us that he is transliterating something. Transliterate means to write a word in a new language so that you can get an idea of how it sounds in that new language. It would be like reading Chinese writing in English letters so that we can know how to pronounce it. So John is taking a word that he knows in Hebrew and is converting it, if you will, to Greek. And now we have to take those Greek letters and convert it into English and hope that in those lost in transliteration things, we can get a sense of what was meant in the original Hebrew. So what is this word that John has transliterated from Hebrew to Greek? This is what Charles Cooper says of it in his paper. Quote, regarding this verse, a note in the Net Bible states, there are many variations in the spelling of this name among the Greek manuscripts, though Harmageddon has the best support. The usual English spelling Armageddon used in the translation 
or Harmageddon, a literal transliteration of the Greek, or Harmageddon, N-A-S-B. The significance of this note, this is Charles Cooper continuing, is that translators of the New Testament should transliterate the Greek, which also means that the text would be printed as Harmageddon. However, to translate one half of the term and transliterate the other half as the Mount of Megadon, as some do, is confusing and does little to help the reader get the sense of the text. In light of this admission to transliterate the text as Armageddon, which is the traditional way the verse reads, is totally misleading and inaccurate. So to put it another way, everybody knows that the word that John is using starts with har, which in Hebrew is the word for mountain. But they're assuming that the second part of the word, megadon, is a proper name instead of another word that needs to be translated like har was. And despite megadon not being how you spell Megiddo in Hebrew, many people just sort of overlook that and assume that Megiddo, the name of a valley in Israel, is what is meant. Take, for example, this quote from the pulpit commentary, which says, The correct reading, Har-Megedon, signifies mountain of Megiddo. One problem with this is that there is no mountain in the valley of Megiddo. Megiddo is a very large valley. Cooper writes, There is no reference in the entire Old Testament to a mountain with the name Megiddo. Not one. There is no mention of a mountain by this name in all the literature known to deal with the ancient Middle East. David Ayun, C.C. Torrey, Meredith Klein, and more recently Michael Heiser are a few scholars that believe that Megadon is not a reference to Megiddo and that it too should be translated just like Har. They believe that the term that John was transliterating from Hebrew to Greek was Harmoed, which means mountain of assembly, and is a reference to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And this is where it gets a little complex, at least for me, someone who does not speak or write Hebrew or Greek, but I will quote from a few papers on this subject. David Ayun writes, Loesby construes the Hebrew underlying word for Armageddon to be Harmoed, mountain of assembly. Hebrew the letter that looks like a Y is often transliterated with the Greek letter that looks like a Y, referring to Mount Zion from where the Messiah will destroy the ungodly. Meredith Klein in his paper says the apparent differences between the Hebrew Harmoed and the Harmagadon rendering can be readily accounted for. Representation of the consonant A-N by Greek gamma is well attested. Also in Hebrew, on is an affirmative to nouns, including place names. Later in the paper, he says the semantic connection is between Megadon and the main verb in the statement, and he gathered Senegan, them and the place called in Hebrew Harmageddon. The verb Sinago interpretively echoes the noun Megadon. He gathered them to the Mount of Gathering. In effect, it translates Megadon, establishing its derivation from Moed, gathering. Sinago is indeed the verb used in the Septuagint to render Ya'ed, appoint, niffel, assemble, appointment, the root of Moed, an appointed time or place of assembly. An instructive parallel is found in Numbers 10, where the interpretive wordplay affords an explanation of Moed, tent of meeting, gathering, which symbolically points to the same heavenly reality that the Har Moed represents. Directions are given to Moses that at the sounding of a certain trumpet signal, the whole assembly, Ayad, from the root Ya'ed, Ayad, shall gather Ya'ed until at the entrance to the tent of meeting, Moed. 
The verb of gathering that brings out the significance of ohel, moed, is rendered in the Septuagint of Numbers 10.3 by the same synago that explains har-megedon in Revelation 16.16. Numbers 10.3 thus corroborates our view of how synago functions in Revelation 16.16. We conclude that the evidence of the Hebrasti clue in Revelation 16.16, which is where John says in Hebrew it is called, clinches the case for the har-moed derivation of har-megedon. I think Michael Heiser has the best understanding of the mountain of assembly, which is that it is indeed a reference to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but it also has some supernatural significance in that it is a reference to the place of the meeting of the divine council, a group of angels who serve God mentioned in several places in scripture, which is what is being referenced in Isaiah 14 as the prize that Satan wanted so badly, that is to sit on the throne of that assembly where this exact phrase is used. In Isaiah 14, 13, it says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, a reference to the angels, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. So that's that same phrase ostensibly being used here in Revelation 16, 16 for Armageddon, the Mount of Assembly. If you read any of the papers that I will link in the show notes of this episode on this subject, you'll find that they're often written in two different parts. The first part is what I consider the good part, where they will describe what the transliteration should probably be, I harmoed. They all kind of have that same uh, thing figured out. But then the second part is them trying to define what the Mount of Assembly is. And this is something that I think a lot of them used to springboard to various theories. I think Meredith Klein used it as a springboard to make a claim of amillennialism. He was just essentially saying that, well, since the Mount of Assembly is Jerusalem, then we can equate this with the Gog-Magog War and that there is no millennium. Um, and then you have somebody like Cooper, who uses the second half of his paper to sort of argue against the old commentators who tried to deal with the Mount of Assembly concept as the Old Testament writers making, giving some significance to like Mount Olympus or something like that. So Cooper comes up with another explanation that I think is less than desirable. So in, in any case, read the, the papers with a grain of salt, but they all seem to say the exact same thing with regard to the actual uh, grammar aspect of this. The net result of all this, though, would mean that Armageddon, Harmoed, takes place in Jerusalem, which of course makes sense, and many other events around that time are also taking place in Jerusalem. I mentioned earlier that it makes sense as well that Satan's last charge against Christ at Armageddon uh, would be for this place that the book of Isaiah says is the prize above all prize. And it, it, it would also make sense that Christ at that moment, uh, given the 30-day thing that we looked at before, already is currently holding that real estate, you know, so Satan is coming against it, trying to take it one last time. One thing to add to that is in the Revelation 27 through 10 passage, where Satan is released one last time at the end of the thousand years, what does he do? He gathers armies of the world to march on Jerusalem. Uh, there's no, I mean, he looks like he's going for the prize again, the mountain of assembly. I suspect there's something very interesting about that throne to make Satan so fixated on it. But, um, you know, it's probably not for us to know, at least in this age. Anyway, 
In any case, this will conclude this episode and this series. You can go to my website, BibleProphecyTalk.com, for the audio podcast or the video links, or to BibleProphecyArchive.com, where I will put all of this as well as basically anything that I can think of that's relevant to Bible prophecy in that archive file that you can download for free or order a free uh, USB drive with all that information on it. Thank you for your time, and I will uh, see you next time.